The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Guest labor code green, employee 8586. Hanson, Annika, you've been a patient here before. Yes, when I first arrived. You were treated for dysphoria syndrome. I don't recall that. These disturbing thoughts you mentioned, would you characterize them as hallucinations? What's the cause of this syndrome? We're, we're conducting studies to determine that. Fortunately, we have one of the foremost experts on the condition working here. I'd like to speak with this expert. But Dr. Caden's very busy. So am I. Perhaps I should return when he's free. Uh, wait here. I'll find him. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 4th, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600, the number to always call to reach us if you want to discuss our subjects today. Or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today on the show, we're going to be talking about good doc, bad doc at the end of the final quarter. And I also want to talk about the ray of darkness. In this case, I'm talking about Bob Ray as Ontario Premier in 1992. Oh, God. And we want to talk about more <laughs> bad medicine. Basically, those three topics are all along the health care debate issue. But we're going to start off with something more along the line of modern-day Martin Luther's, is what you were calling them. Robert, you had an interesting weekend this weekend, and you're going to tell us about it. Yeah, I don't know whether or not the people I'll be talking about would um, like or appreciate the fact that I'm <laughs> likening them to a, a Martin Luther back in 1517 when he nailed his proclamation on the uh, castle church at Wittenberg. But um, I got that impression when I went to a, a meeting this uh, Sunday, but I'll, I'll get into that shortly. I just want to harken back to September 11th, 2001. And I don't know about you, Bob, when I looked at the news that day, it didn't go unnoticed by me that there was dancing in the streets in many Muslim nations. Mm -hmm. Quite literally, they were dancing in the streets. Um, it's not a secret that millions of Muslims around the world and even those living in the Western countries despise Western values and refuse to integrate into the free and civilized world. And even today, we have prominent American and Canadian Muslim organizations and leaders who are in league with the Muslim Brotherhood and the Wahhabi Mullahs in Saudi Arabia and are working tirelessly to destroy the West and every good it stands for. But as we've said on this show before, not all Muslims are against freedom and capitalism. Not all Muslims are our enemy. But where are they? Why don't we hear from them? For the celebrity few, like Ayan Hirsi Ali, who do speak out, there are death threats and intimidation. Many keep silent for fear of retribution from the greater Muslim community. It's obvious. But on Sunday, I was invited by Professor Salim Mansour from the Political Science Department here at Western and a frequent guest on our show, mm -hmm. to attend and video the launch of a new voice for many Muslims in Canada who have remained silent. And the new organization is called Muslims Facing Tomorrow. And Salim is the vice president of MFT, while activist and Arthur Rahil Raza is the president. 
and Rahil Raza comes from the Muslim Canadian Congress, MCC. Mm-hmm. At the meeting, journalist and television host Christine Williams spoke. And no stranger to you, Bob, as she's mm-hmm. had you on her show uh, several times. Uh, couldn't count them. I yeah. had boxes full of <laughs> audio yeah. and DVDs. I, I guess we can count Christine as a friend. Yes. And the keynote was delivered by uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser, an ex-USA Navy SEAL Lieutenant Commander, a Muslim, and the founder and president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, AIFD. Now, what I heard at that event is precisely what I've been longing to hear from an organization of Muslims, a call to reject all violence, to embrace Western values and freedoms, including the freedom to offend, as with the Innocence of Muslims video trailer that was on the Internet and sparked so much violence. Yes, they do exist. I've been on CTS, on Christine Williams' show, with other Muslims who totally agreed with with my points of view on on no censorship and and issues of of religious debate. You know, I think it might be a shock to most people. It was a refreshing uh, surprise to me. I didn't hear a single note of reticence in their condemnation of those Muslims calling for the curtailment of free speech or any other individual right protected by both the U.S. and Canadian constitutions. In fact... During the question period, one man stood up. Now get this, Bob. A man stood up at the back of the room, gave his name, and declared that he was a Muslim apostate. Which, by the way, according to Mm -hmm. some in Islam, is punishable by death immediately. Boom. You're dead. But he got up and suggested that the crowd give up their belief in superstition. There were no gasps of shock or anything like that at all. In fact, a few people applauded. This is a room... Of about 160 Muslims, by my count, and I did stand up and count them, about 160 Muslims, mostly Muslims, and he declared his apostasy without any fear. I knew I was in the right room. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul so, McKeever just posted a, a blog post last night or this morning, and I'll quote from it. He says, your enemy is not Islam. Your enemy is that imam or that Islamic organization who has called upon trustees and other politicians to turn your child's public school into a mosque. In truth, their attitude towards your objection is, if you lack the gonadal fortitude to condemn us, you are handing control of your future to us, sucker. And he's absolutely correct. Ayn Rand called it the sanction of the victim. Oh, that's why we let it happen that. to us. Mm-hmm. Now, while ideas matter, it's not ideas which kill people. It's people who kill people. It's not the notion of Islam which kills us. It's individual Muslims. Those who espouse evil should be routed out as evil. And likewise, as with this group, those who espouse freedom and peace and capitalism and justice should be lauded for their courage to do so while surrounded by evil men. I've wrestled with the apparent contradiction of what I understand to be Islam and the individual actions of Muslims. And that evening I listened as speaker after speaker affirmed that there are many types of Islam. There are Muslims who, much as many Christians do with the Bible, pick and choose verses from the Quran to believe and those not to believe. Dr. Jasser outright rejected the notion that, for example, Muhammad consummated a marriage with nine-year-old Aisha. He simply doesn't believe it. He rejected the call to kill infidels or Jews, regardless of what it says in the Quran. We've seen this before in Christianity, as many choose to reject those aspects of the Bible which are inconsistent with civilization and have relegated such passages to history and myth. They may now be 
uh, rather, this is how a religion reforms itself, and that's why I sort of liken them to a modern-day Martin Luther. By the way, that's Martin Luther, you know, the monk. <laughs> Not Martin Luther King, yeah, Martin Luther, the right. German monk. Okay. Actually, that should be said, because even I made that mistake when you first <laughs> mentioned it this morning. I just took it for granted. You know, <laughs> you know it's interesting to hear Dr. Jasser also take on the Muslim notion of taqiyya. Now, I had this going through my mind, but he was asked by conservative blogger Dr. Roy Epen, who happened to be in the room as well, how does one know that they're not being hoodwinked by moderate Muslims? Because taqiyya means basically to, to, to lie, lie to, you, yeah. to lie to infidels. Yeah, He said, Dr. Jasser said that by putting his position on the public record and doing it consistently through word and action, that should convince people of his sincerity. Not necessarily in those words he said it, but yes, that's what well, he was Well, that's the only thing with. that can, sure. Yes, constant, um, consistent action and words. Um, he also called for a return to um, exegesis, which, by the way, if you remember my interview with uh, Lord Christopher Monckton, he talked about um, the loss of exegesis in um, Islam to be quite a, a failure of, uh, of the uh, religion. And it, uh, for those who don't know, exegesis is a critical... Uh, interpretation and analysis of uh, text, and in this particular case, the Quran. Sort of like self-examination, an inward look at one one's own beliefs. Right, looking at deeper meanings to mm -hmm. things, taking things not necessarily literally, but looking at them um, as allegories and things like that. Uh, an exegesis is a study and interpretation critically. And uh, Islam seems to have lost that and have put their uh, faith in the uh, imams and clergy of uh, Islam, and, and Dr. Jasser in his book, um, new book, uh, basically says Islam has no clergy. And he's absolutely correct in that sense. He's, he looks at Islam as a very personal thing, and he interprets it the way he interprets it, and not other Muslims interpret it the way they do. We have to take on evil ideas and those who harbor them. When a Muslim stands up publicly to denounce anti-Semitism, misogyny, violence, homophobia, arrange marriages to six-year-olds, and acts consistently to show that he is sincere, what more do we need to know to accept the fact that Islam to him is completely different than it is to Osama bin Laden, the Wahhabis, and members of the Muslim Brotherhood? So it was a very interesting evening on Sunday. I videotaped the whole thing and all of the speeches. I'm putting together the videos now, and they should be on Just Trade's YouTube channel, within the next couple of days, and that is youtube.com slash justrightmedia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look I, forward to that. I, I was going to ask you, too, um, did, the, did the specific issue of separation of church and state come up at all during yes. the weekend? Yes, and they specifically talked about the separation of church and mosque, specifically. There should be, there's no politicization of Islam, they were saying. All of the speakers, Rahil Raza, Christine Williams, who, by the way, is a Christian, from what I know, and um, Dr. Jasser. You know, I, I asked that in light of a completely different issue that I noticed lately that Russia, under the, uh, under the um, guise of Putin, right, um, is trying to reunite the church and state. And, that you know, I'm starting to think that's maybe what the whole pussy riot thing's all about. Interesting. One step forward, two steps yes, back. Yes, I wonder. You know, it's a, an interesting thing that might could be happening. But uh, is, that, is that all you have on that? Yeah. Okay, well, let's carry on with our next subject. When we come back after this, we're going to be talking about our health care system and something that got me all upset on the weekend. And, uh, well, I'll tell you how that came to be. 
right after this. How are you feeling? Better. That's what happens when you get the proper treatment. But I'm not authorized to receive cytoglobin. You are now. You'll need several more injections, but you can expect a complete recovery. Whatever you did, they'll find out. They'll punish you. You're assuming I've done something illicit. Didn't you? Of course not. I simply had a talk with Chelik. Explained to him what a bright young man you are. And he had the allocator recalculate your TC. I've never met a doctor like you. Well, it's not hard to stand out when the general level of competence is so low. If you'd mind doing me a favor, I'd like you to give me a checkup. While I was aboard that ship, I poisoned a man. Deliberately? Yes. I was trying to force him to let me treat patients who were dying. You were prepared to sacrifice an individual to benefit a collective? No offense, Seven, but I don't exactly aspire to Borg ideals. You were hoping your behavior was the result of a malfunction. I'm sorry, Doctor. But I must give you a clean bill of health. Yeah, we have a caller, Rob, on the line who would like to ask us a question before we carry on with our next topic, Robert. Hello, Rob. Yeah. What's Go ahead. Uh, uh, speaking uh, rationally, why don't people admit that religion is a mental illness. Hmm. You know, if I were to walk around believing that there's a big pink bunny invisible that controls everything, that can do everything for me and give me all that I wish for, well, what would you say about me? Sounds like a Jimmy Stewart Harvey. Right. You know, I think you're confusing two things. I think you're confusing religion with literalism. Yeah. Um, you know... Religion has always been, and I was always taught religion was an allegory. I never, I was never ever brought up as a literalist. And even Ayn Rand, you know, supreme rationalist, as we mentioned last week, she talked about religion as a philosophy being a, a way that early man learned a primitive values. philosophy, yeah. Yes. Now, the literalism part of it, yeah, that, you could say that that's mental illness, but I, I, that would be a very broad brush. It might be true in some people. I think it's because the, uh, the people who accept a particular religion on faith, and that's the problem right there, is accepting something with no evidence, have accepted a certain metaphysics, that there's a supernatural nature to the universe, and then they just go from there in all kinds of directions. So if, to call it a mental illness, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I would say that it is, they're, they're basing their beliefs on a misconception or something that they're accepting on faith and not, not reason. What do you say to that, Rob? Well, you know, willing to devote yourself and your actions to an imaginary being that you have never talked to, you've never seen, you've never experienced, does that sound like sane to you? It just sounds irrational to me. Yes, I, I would agree with you, and I don't accept uh, religion on faith or anything like that. I try to take everything with using evidence, but to, to say that it's a mental illness, I, I, ju I would just say it's irrational, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, me and my, thanks for the call, yeah, Rob. Thanks for the call. You know, myself, I, I still separate the, the, the religion from, from the deity belief. Mm-hmm. Not all religions have a deity, so you brush all religions with that. The deity belief is a whole other issue, but uh, one we've discussed many times. Now, for the rest of the show, I want to be a, a bit of an extremist for, for the duration of today's show. You know, I've been finding myself growing both tired and disgusted with this barrage, constant barrage of thieves and con artists getting to legally rip us off and even do physical harm to us, simply because they're politicians or public figures representing group and special interests. So I think it's time to return the favor. Uh, These people have to be personally held responsible, since that's the only kind of responsibility I know about, for their actions, especially when those actions are motivated by self-stated evil intentions, however we might want to avoid the use of that word. I also think the public's starting to feel that way. If you look at what's going on with poor Chris uh, Bentley in the legislature, they're ready for a lynching. And, uh, you know, you, you can see there's a tremendous anger building up. So what got me so riled up? Turned on the radio this past weekend on Sunday morning, listened to a repeat show on one of the talk show radios, and I tuned into the middle of it, so I didn't get all the details, but I heard a woman in the middle of an interview who who I thought was saying some very vile and contemptible things, completely unconscionable, and that was the word that she was using. Her name was Doris, and she spoke with a very thick accent I couldn't quite identify, so I thought she was some leader of a communist or hate group or some sort. Interestingly, she used the word unconscionable as if to describe some unthinkable act, something that shouldn't be tolerated by individuals anywhere. So I tuned in a bit late and I started asking myself, what is she talking about? Child molestation? Kidnapping? Murder? War crimes? Who is this person? Politician? A police officer? Then she says that people could go online to voice their opinion on the issue and the place to go was www.rnao.org. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what? Registered Nurses Association the Registered of Ontario. Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. And I, then I thought, okay, maybe she's talking about abortion, euthanasia, or some medical procedure, you know, some practice that should not be allowed. So she is a communist then. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Well, well, I'm not going to be kidding. Okay, yeah. Lay and on the line so what, what, what was this great unconscionable evil? Guess what it was. It was, quote, making a profit. She is a communist. Yes, and the target of her attack was a well-renowned hospital here in the province of Ontario called the Shoulders Clinic. Apparently, one of the last remaining for-profit hospitals in the country, now for sale, should be prevented from being sold to another for-profit company and should be taken over by the government so as to, quote, comply with the Canada Health Act, which I think is one of the most oxymoronic pieces of legislation ever contrived. This is the consequence of communist thinking. And before we discuss the particulars of what the RNAO wants to do to the Shoulders Clinic in the next quarter of the show, let's first examine the motives and issues behind this controversy, whose sale shouldn't even be a public issue. Based on its self-stated ideology and explicit objectives, the Registered Nurses Association is a communist organization. You can't define them on any other terms because they don't have any other agenda. I think she just defined it for for herself. But we also have to recall, just like you were talking earlier, communism, you know, what is that? It's the result of communists, evil people who unite for a common evil cause and then force it on others. Now, they'll just tell you, well, well, communism is just state ownership and control of the means of production. That sounds so boring and so harmless. How do you do that? How do you accomplish that? That's the question. But that's also just the result of the communist. A communist 
is a hater of life and of liberty and above all of the enabling right to life and liberty, and that is property, especially productive property. They always tell you, oh, we'll let you own your own house, but you can't own the factory. You know, that's, that's no, outrageous. No, the workers must own the means of yes, production. No, yeah. To me, these are the people who are the unconscionables. They have unconscionable desires attached to unconscionable means, and that's what makes it. And so, you know, this, to, to deny that these people are pushing evil and something that's harmful, uh, you know, is to even deny that evil exists. And I think a lot of people want to believe that. I use this word unconscionable because that's the exact word the RNAO used to condemn the good. You know, haters of the good for being good, like Ayn Rand used to always say. Now, you know, whether they're aware of it or not is not the issue. Let's face it, a murderer who's too stupid or unaware of his murderous actions that they cause harm to others, which is the objective standard at play here, is no less a murderer than if he were murdering his victims in a cold, conscious act of brutality, which is what communism ultimately is. Always turns out that way. Never starts that way. Well, in some countries it did, but, you know, and that's the system de- not, uh, desired by communists, like Doris, like the, like the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, whose spokespersons are openly avowed communists. Whether they call them that or not is not, call themselves that or not, is not the issue. Arose by any other name, as they say. You know, they should be publicly identified for what they are and personally held responsible and condemned for the harm they cause to others. We have to stop thinking of these people as our friends. And nor do they have our best interests at heart, despite all their lies to the contrary. You know, how old am I now? I'm, getting, I'm 60 now. There was a time not so long ago when, when people like Doris would have been run out of town, maybe tarred and feathered and strung up in a flash mob lynching for suggesting the kind of things she's suggesting. It's taken for granted today. Today, we live in an environment of moral relativism. Causing harm to others is just another philosophy Another political ideal, no better or worse than the philosophy and political ideal that says, first, do no harm. Just different. And that's how all socialists look at it. You remember how the Islamist we quoted on a previous show said when he compared his philosophy to that of of Israel. He's one of the bad Islamists. He said, you love life, we love death. That was pretty clear. Black and white, that. In the world of moral relativism, that's pretty much the essence of what Doris was saying, too. Now, I'm more than well aware that the words good and evil are overused and in, a, in inappropriate situations and circumstances. But let us not forget the words good and evil are also severely underused when it's appropriate and necessary to do so. Unfortunately, they lose their weight and value when they are inflated by use, just like money loses its value. Now, you know, even getting something for nothing is not an evil in and of itself. After all, the air we breathe is free. And that's a good thing, isn't it? (laughs) But what if the air you have to breathe isn't free anymore? You have a serious lung disease or you now rely on other people to provide you with that air by way of oxygen tanks, lung transplants, or other drugs or medications that will, you know, assist you. Without those other people, you might be dead. In that case, getting something for nothing does become a very serious moral issue. Are you getting that something for nothing through voluntary action without causing harm to others? Or are you getting something for nothing through the use of force against another, which is also always harmful to that someone else? I'm always amazed at how North Korea has been called by many as you know, one of the most evil places on the face of the planet. And from what I've seen and learned of that country, it's true. Yet North Korea, 
like Cuba and Ontario, are the only three known places on the planet that outlaw choice in health care, even if they have, you know, socialized health care, that insist on a single-payer system, the taxpayer, to fund health care. Patients aren't allowed to fund the system, not as patients, only as taxpayers. And then the politicians have a gall to call it insurance. <laughs> twisting every term we understand. And that's why the system's falling apart and is unsustainable. And it runs contrary to all the logic of the numbers involved. You know, I used to think about it. I bet you a lot of people think this way, too. Even with all us baby boomers getting old and putting an extra demand on health care services, wouldn't you think that there are always millions of more taxpayers than there are patients at any one given point in time? Does that make sense to you, Robert? It does, yeah. So we can't why, all be sick. No, right. So why isn't the system, if it taxes all of us for the few, making obscene profits? That should be what's happening in the healthcare system. Wouldn't that be logical? But instead, this healthcare system that operates on just taking your money from you operates on obscene losses to everyone involved, including, by the way, loss of the essential services as they were once understood to be. And yet... This is the obscenity that the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario is fully behind. And not only does it support these obscene losses, it opposes profit on every level, arguing that profit is somehow an excess, when in fact, profit is a necessity to a healthy health care system. That's what reduces costs and prices. And that's not what they want. They want to have a high price because they're on, in on the system. Otherwise, you unavoidably will get a system of corruption from top to bottom. Constantly in crisis, constantly in need, constantly getting worse, you know, not better. So sound, sound familiar? It's no accident. It has been done consciously and knowingly by evil people devoted to evil ideas. And when we return on the other side of our upcoming break, the voices you'll be hearing are from a dim and distant past, April of 1992, when President George Bush, the first one, by the way, was in power south of the border, and the Premier of Ontario was none other than Bob Ray. And what we'll hear when we come back will be from the McNeil Lehrer Report on Medicare. And we'll be hearing the voices of Gail Walensky, Deputy Assistant to the President of the U.S. at the time, and Bob Ray himself, then Premier of Ontario. Gail Walensky, by the way, was also the head of Medicare. In the States? Yes. Interesting. I didn't know that particular detail. Yeah. I don't know if she was at the time of this interview. Right. But after that, I'll be explaining point by point why I think everything that Bob Ray said is false and misleading, although very articulately expressed. We'll return after this. What is it today, Sam? Ministry. All the morning on National Health Service Administration. <laughs> ah, this chap just been talking about that in the radio saying that the trouble with health and education and transport is that all the top people in government go to private hospitals and send their kids to private schools. <laughs> Very good. Comedy programme, was it? <laughs> <laughs> and go to work and chauffeur-driven cars. <laughs> but don't you think there's something in it, sir? I mean, if you and Sir Humphrey went to work on a number 27... I'm quite impracticable. We work quite long enough hours a day as it is without having to wait an extra hour at bus stops. You'd have to make the bus service much more efficient, wouldn't you, sir? Well, he certainly would. Yes, that's what he was saying. <laughs> I was just saying with the health service. You remember a boot, sir? Anything on the radio, Ron? 
<coughs> it was about time for yesterday in Parliament, I think, sir. Oh, well, uh, don't, don't bother, don't. Good question, <laughs> time. Mr. Lanford, the opposition member for Birmingham South West, asked the Minister of Administrative Affairs, Mr. James Hacker, about the government's pledge to reduce the number of administrators in the health service. <laughs> yes, sir, the government has already achieved a reduction of 11.3% in administrative and clerical staff and is actively pursuing further economies. But would the minister explain how his assurance to the House squares with this minute from his own department? At this point, Mr. Lanford dramatically produced a paper from his pocket. I quote, if data processing staff were reclassified from administrative to technical, and if the base of comparison was changed from the financial to the calendar year, then the figures will show a fall of 11.3%. Would the minister care to comment on this shabby deception? That was a bit of a googly, wasn't it, sir? How would you how would you judge and what basis would you use to judge the differences between the quality the, the health care that the average Canadian gets vis-a-vis -vis the quality that the average American gets? Well, I think that what we are trying to do in this country and it's something this country has been a leader on is look to outcome measurements look to what really makes a difference as well as of course how people function how well they're functioning the whole sense of well-being very little of medical care at any point in time really is distinguishing between life and death. It has a lot to do with quality of life, how well we function, the sense of, of well-being that we have in our system. Those factors, of course, are driving in part our interest in reform. We know that we've got to make changes. I don't want to sound mm -hmm. like our healthcare system now is everything it, it should be. We know that's not true. But on areas like quality and easy accessibility and comfort, we do have very strong measures and leaders in research and development and training of uh, pharmaceutical research, areas in which not only we gain a lot, but of course the rest of the world gets to gain with us. Mr. Ray, how, uh, what measurements m would you use to judge the differences in, in the health qu care quality that the average Canadian, average American gets? Well, uh, well I, I do happen to think that, that uh, basic criteria like uh, how long you live and, and uh, how many children uh, uh, survive and so on. I think those are basic factors. Those are basic measurements that are used by the World Health Organization and, uh, and everyone else. Uh, I'm not dis I don't disagree with Ms. Walensky when she says that there are a lot of other factors. Of course there are, but let's not, let's not redefine the, uh, the problem or redefine the issue. Uh, and I think those are, those are, uh, those are critical uh, criteria that you've got to use. I also just want to take issue because Ms. Walensky keeps coming back to this, this, uh, this specter, uh, which I, I know is such a feature of American politics, of the government running everything. Uh, the reality in our system is, is that what drives the health care system is the relationship between patients and doctors. Uh, that's as true of our system as it's true of, uh, of, of the system right in the United there. States. Let's stop right there. Are you suggesting something different than what he has said? about the Canadian system? Do you think it works differently than what he just said? Well, I think that the issue of whether the most important relationship is patient uh, and physician is, of course, true. The question of whether or not government makes fundamental allocation decisions about where technologies, facilities, and specialists are uh, available 
is something that characterizes Canada, doesn't but, characterize but every system. But I, I guess my disagreement with Ms. Walensky is, is, that she, is that I think she's forgetting the fact that every system uh, makes, makes a decision about priorities. This argument somehow that, that Canada is, is, uh, is, uh, is a system in which the government runs everything, which is false, that just isn't true, uh, and then to say that, that there's no rationing in the United States or that there's no allocation going on in the United States, of course there is. It's just that it's being done in a different way, and it's You're being done in a way that isn't as, isn't as clear to everyone. Yes, some priorities are established. That, of course, was Bob Ray, Premier of Ontario, 1992. 20 years ago, can you believe that, Robert? A haunting voice from the past. Yes, and a haunting voice I actually got off a of beta videotape, so that wasn't too bad sounding, was it? No, actually. You remember beta? Beta actually was better than VHS. <laughs> and he was debating with Gail Walensky, Deputy Assistant to President Bush Sr. back at that time. In another part of that interview, we, we actually aired it on a previous episode of Just Right, that Ray made the point that the only thing being being made public in Ontario's Medicare program was Ontario's system of insurance, <clears throat> which is one of those things I call a fact used to disguise an untruth. <laughs> <laughs> Gail Walensky, a Republican conservative, makes a reasonable economic argument with expressed objective objectives of health care quality, outcome measurements, but you hear everybody use that term and it's almost meaningless. It doesn't really win the argument, does it? And, of course, Bob Ray agrees with her on this, point by point. Ms. Walensky has already lost the debate. She never once mentioned the sheer immorality of her opponent's point of view and never dared to go near it. Bob Ray says Ms. Walensky keeps coming back to the specter, a feature of American politics, of the government running everything, responds Ray, even though that's not what she said. She never said everything. She only mentioned one or two things, health care choice and insurance choice. So create a straw man and knock him down and your opponent, you know, down to one of those two birds with one stone approach. And that's what Bob Ray did. He says, the reality in our system is that what drives a health care system is the relationship between patients and doctors. That's as true of our system as it's true of the system in the United States, he says. Well... This is both a falsehood and, and an amazing admission on the part of Bob Ray, and that admission being that the U.S. system is driven by a doctor-patient relationship. Before that, they wouldn't even say that. The falsehood... He would is have that, said it was driven by profit. Yeah, exactly. The falsehood is that this is equally true of Ontario's socialized health care system, which in fact severs the direct connection between doctor and patient. First, the economic relationship between the two no longer exists because clearly it's a doctor government and patient government relationship. The money part. While the medical relationship between the doctor and patient has continued to deteriorate to a point where patients are shuffled through a system as if though they all had the same medical condition and were given the same things. And for good reason. They all have the same economic condition. They're part of the government health care system. And Bob Ray says... The question, or sorry, this is Walensky. She says, the question of whether or not government makes fundamental allocation decisions about where technologies, facilities, and specialists are available is something that, that characterizes Canada and doesn't characterize the USA. Now, she says this very dispassionately and economically, again, resp responding on an economic point. Very accurate, but not overly convincing. 
So again, Ray comes back. He says he says his disagreement with Miss Falinski is that she's forgetting the fact that every system makes decisions about priorities. This argument that somehow Canada is a system in which government runs everything, which is false and isn't even true, and then to say that there's no rationing going on in the states or that there's no allocation going on in the states, of course there is, he says. It's just that it's being done in a different way and being done in a way that isn't clear to everyone. Yes, some priorities are established. So again, they sound the same when they talk on the economic argument. So what makes Ray different? Well, again, and for the second time within a minute and a half, Ray falsely accuses Walensky of saying the government runs everything, which, again, she didn't say. You heard it. When she explicitly said it was, in Canada, the government makes allocation decisions about the location of technologies and facilities, which is not the case in the U.S. A fact. A fact used to reveal a truth. Then Ray uses moral relativism, disguised as economic relativism. Wrong either way. And just like the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario argues that, quote, it's just being done in a different way. The unstated difference being the difference between moral and immoral. Force and no force. Yes, yes, they're very different. One's right and one's wrong. Exactly as I mentioned with Doris last time. You know, in our environment of moral relativism today, causing harm to others is just another philosophy, another political ideal. No better or worse than the philosophy and political ideal that says... First, do no harm. Just different. That's what Ray is saying. And, you know, Bob's, that's why I call it Bob's, Bob Ray's, Bob Ray's ray of darkness has extended right into today's Medicare debate a full 20 years later. Dated September 21st, 2012, the Registered Nurses Association, in its action alert, advocates, among other totalitarian suggestions, the following. Quote, send an action alert today as we need your voice to speak out against for-profits. Ontarians need not-for-profit care. That, one, does not cut corners to maximize return on shareholders' investment. Two, does not have a financial incentive to close the door on unprofitable patients. Three, does not provide faster access for those who can afford it. You know, I'm thinking, what does that got to do with profit? Nothing. This is just purely wanting to cause harm to somebody else. Four, does not expose Canada to lawsuits under NAFTA and other trade deals if future government regulations affect Centric's profitability. Centric being the company that buys lawsuits under NAFTA and other trade deals if future government regulations affect Centric's profitability. Centric being the company that's buying them out. And five, is accountable and operated with the transparency of a publicly delivered not-for-profit. And I'm thinking... What transparency is that? Like the transparency of our public government-run power system, which has Chris Bentley up on contempt of Parliament charges today? Is that how public systems are run? And then they write it as unconscionable and totally unacceptable to stand by and allow shoulders to be sold to a for-profit U.S. conglomerate. And then they say, ask Health Minister Matthews not to let the shoulders hospital be sold for-profit U.S. conglomerate. Now, I have to say, you know, all of the fears expressed by the RNAO in their list of conditions against profit already apply to the non-profit socialist health care system we've got now. The public health care system today, one, it cuts corners to minimize costs since there's no profit in the system to do otherwise. 
The public health care system today, too, has a financial disincentive to close the door to costly patients. And I can name several by first and last names in my own personal dealings who can't get doctors, who won't get treatments, because they're sick people. And they don't want to deal with sick people or people who need drugs, prescription drugs that may be narcotic because of all the paperwork and all the regulations. The public system, healthcare system today, number three, is continually providing slower, more costly, more restricted access to everyone, rich and poor alike, although that might be regarded as a phenomenal success given the RNAO standards. The public healthcare system today, number four and five, is completely unaccountable to anyone, least of all the patient. The advocacy of immunity from lawsuits is an explicit call for unaccountability and no accounting ability. Nothing in these demands even touches upon any, what I would call, health-related issues. Just follow the money from our pockets right into theirs. And all for nothing, or less than nothing. And this is where I have to say these are evil suggestions, and to act upon them will harm the innocent. I think people should be sending letters to Health Minister Matthews to pull the plug on the Registered Nurses Association as a lobby group that promotes monopolies. Except that Health Minister Matthews is also one of them, a communist. She's publicly stated her steadfast commitment to our totally communist system of health care. Utterly unconscionable. For anyone to advocate such things is reprehensible. And their fear of a U.S. control, you know, is merely a substitute for wanting Canadian political control. They don't want Obama controlling it. They want them to control it. This is all purely evil stuff coming out of the minds of evil people who have to become to be seen as recognized as such. These ideas and all of the collectivist ideas like them have been practiced by crooks, dictators, and criminals alike since the dawn of recorded history and never have these ideas ever led to the promised panacea of benefits offered by the con artists and socialists. Honest people just don't ever say such things. They just don't. It's always, and without exception, the path to total destruction of whatever's being subjected to those ideas. You see it around the world, whether it's an individual or even the system. Both will ultimately be forced to pay the penalty. But the greater tragedy is this. The sins of today's communists will be paid for by the virtues of tomorrow's capitalists. The people who will have to create the wealth to pay for the debt of today. They will pay, but not benefit, because they're on the wrong end of the pyramid scheme for which people like Bernie Madoff were sentenced to jail for a hundred years doing the same thing. No profit, non-profit, forced by law. What an obscenity, which is what we'll take a closer look at when we return after this and we talk about good doc, bad doc. Right after this. You're dying? I got my results from my annual insurance physical. All the tests came back negative, except for one. I have Dork syndrome. But that's incurable. That's right. Which explains the dying part. But Dork syndrome, it's so rare. It strikes only one out of every five million Ferengi. I finally beat the odds. How long do you have before... According to Dr. Orpak, six days. Maybe seven. Is he sure? Oh, of course he's sure. He's one of the most expensive doctors on Ferenginar. He charges two slips of latinum just to walk into the waiting room. This is terrible. I don't want you to die, brother. 
Maybe you should get a second opinion. I'll talk to Bashir examine you when he gets back from the Gamma Quadrant. Bashir? How good could he be? He doesn't even charge. There was no reason for security to stop her. She accessed 64 restricted files, all of them for people diagnosed with dysphoria syndrome. According to the records, those patients were all admitted on the same day. And you're listed as the attending physician in every case. Oh, yes, I remember. Quite, quite an outbreak. You've never mentioned it. Well, I'm sorry if I haven't kept you properly informed about my patients. Every one of them was discharged to the main power authority. That supervisor you were talking to, that's where he worked. I explained that to you. I was informing him about a potential health threat. That plant worker, Amal Kote, he claimed that his friends had been abducted and put to work after having their memories altered. What are you implying? You're making false diagnoses. Selectively changing what people remember and then sending them to work at the power plant. Very good, Doctor. Why? A physician with more experience would be able to see this in the larger context. The true public health threat is the labor shortage, and the only cure is to find more skilled workers. We're doctors. We're not supposed to harm patients. We're helping them to lead productive, happy lives. By altering their memories? The treatment I provide improves their lives and makes them better workers. In turn, our economy benefits. You're profiting from this, aren't you? Doesn't a physician deserve to be compensated for his services? I'll report you. To whom? My research is funded by the Ministry of Health. Well, criminal investigations then. As you may recall, the director of investigations was the one who ordered Amal Kote be placed under my care. Does everyone know about this? Not everyone. Just a few trusted associates. The question is, are you going to be one of them? And that is the question, of course. That was from an episode of Voyager, which I think was more symbolic than most of us realize. Science fiction or not, boy, I want to take that little scene that we just heard, Robert, apart sentence by sentence and apply it to what we're dealing with today. Take the symbolism and draw it down to the concrete reality, even from the very first. And, and, I, and I, I'm going to call the two doctors who are having the argument there, the good doctor and the bad doctor, for simplicity's sake. The good doctor starts off by saying that someone left. She was a voluntary patient. Right off the bat, I'm already thinking, well, at least she could leave, disengage herself from the system, unlike Ontarians who can't leave the system, even if they're not a patient. We're still stuck with it. Then the evil doctor says, I was informing him about a potential health threat. And then I'm going, ah, there it is, preventative health care. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You see the symbolism. Good doctor says, well, they were put to work after having their memories altered. 
And I'm thinking, yeah, just like the citizens of Ontario who must pay taxes and suffer the consequences, the restrictions placed on their health care choices, especially the choice of buying complete health care insurance or pay directly. Without these two options ever being reinstalled, our health care system has no chance of ever recovering from its constant crisis. And health care standards, and even like as an education, will drop precipitously. The government simply doesn't have the money anymore and now must be forced to either ration, and, it, and when you ration, you rationalize. That's how, yeah. you, that's how you justify it. Then the good doctor says you're making false diagnosis, selectively changing what people remember and then sending them to work at the power plant. Well, altering our memories, our knowledge of the history of how socialist control of our Medicare system was executed is a common theme to all deceptions. You heard on this very show, again on an earlier broadcast, the voice of Tommy Douglas, who we identified as a true villain in every sense of the word, especially given that he knew and understood in advance, no less, that a single-payer health care system could not possibly be sustainable if it were to be focused on treating sick patients. Thus was born the con game of preventative health care, under which it was assumed that people would never get sick and therefore would never need sick care. And take this literally, because I've you heard it on left, right, and center, me arguing with people for 20 years who actually believe this. It's, it's just unbelievable. Socialist mind at work. And, you know, talk about the ultimate disconnect from reality and reason. And those are two fundamentals that are always discarded by evil in whatever form it takes. That's almost the test. Have they left reality and reason in their advocacy? I won't comment on the irony of our being forced to work at the power plant because all of us are hostage to that too. Just ask Chris Bentley, our jailkeeper, but I'll save that one for another day. Then the evil doctor says a physician with more experience would be able to see the larger context that the true public health threat is the labor shortage. And the only cure is more skilled workers. Well, isn't that interesting? Shortages of all kinds, including doctors and nurses, are a natural consequence when you're practicing an evil system. And of course, the threat is not so much to the individual patient, about whom this doctor does not care, but a threat to the healthcare system, too, of which he is part. And the good doctor says, We're doctors, we're not supposed to harm patients. And I say, Exactly. First, do no harm. That's the sign of a good doctor. Whatever else you might do for a patient, not the system, please, first, do no harm to anyone else. Then the evil doctor says, my treatment makes them better workers and turn our economy benefits. That's the efficiency argument, Robert. That's also the argument that the uh, ends justify the means. Exactly. Exactly. Used by communists and socialists to justify their system, as opposed to you know, to a system of capitalism and capitalists. I heard this almost every other week on left, right, and center from both both the center and left. The workers are the fodder that fuel, uh, and the fuel, rather, that feed the doctor, not the economy. The economy is actually being drained of its wealth. And to uh, extend that analogy, fuel gets consumed. That's right. And the good doctor says, you're profiting from this, aren't you? And I have to say, well, yes, he is, but only in the biblical sense of the word. In the economic sense of the word, as I was taught when I went to Fanshawe College and took economics, (laughs) uh, in the capitalist sense, he's not profiting as such. He's just gaining his wealth at the expense of others. True profit, economically, is earned. It's not expropriated. 
As such, the service must be offered in a free environment, meaning that the recipients of the service also have a choice, among other competing service providers who must also be offered a choice. And of course, they also have the choice not to buy or trade their services. Then the evil doctor says, Does, doesn't the physician deserve to be compensated for his services? And I have to answer, well, yes, he does. If his services truly treat or heal the patient, not the healthcare system, that's all you ever hear them talking about. And if it's the latter, then the plug has to be pulled from the doctor for the sake of the patient. Just yesterday, I was talking about this issue, and you so were you. We're just the one we're talking about with, uh, in a completely different context, with um, lawyer and FP leader Paul McKeever about how this manifests itself in Ontario. And he wrote, and I quote. Basically, their attitude towards the suffering or death of your spouse or of your child or of your friend is, well, poo-poo happens, though he was a bit more excremental in his description. (laughs) (laughs) But I got paid and I deserve it. Isn't that exactly what the bad doctor just said in that scenario? Same thing. Good doctor says, I'll report you. Again, that doctor is seeking justice, which makes him a good doctor, both in the medical sense and in the moral sense. And the evil doctor says, to whom? My research is funded by the Ministry of Health, as are, I have to add, all private practitioners and private hospitals, including the Shoulders Clinic that was the target of the RNAO. But in their case, the private only pertains to ownership, not to control. People don't know this, but even Shoulders' profits were being controlled by the government, which was giving them problems. They could not innovate. They could not bring in new systems. And there were many editorials that I brought them here with me, couldn't get to them, that that talk about that very thing. And this system of private ownership and state control has a very explicit name. That is actually fascism. There's no other word for it. Look in the dictionary. You can't find another word for it. And the good doctor says, well, criminal investigations then. Still looking for justice. Still a good doctor. And the evil doctor says, but they initiated my research. Only the trusted few knew about it. Well, that's what happens when the government is both the referee and a player in the game of deceit. The public isn't even in the game except as pieces used for the objectives of the players. That's what they are. It's just like the students. You know, everybody's saying, well, they're just just being played with between the unions and the government. Well, that's true. That's the point. That's the game they're playing. They built the board. Unbelievable. You know, people assume that doctors have to take the Hippocratic Oath, which is where you're quoting when you say, first do no harm. Mm -hmm. But from my understanding, they do not. As a matter of fact, in the United States, where I was reading some research on how many doctors um, or medical schools down there require people to take an oath after their graduation, and it's like 3%. And there are many versions of the Hippocratic Oath. But um, if you're assuming out there that your doctor is doing no harm... You're mistaken in many respects. Interesting. And finally, the evil doctor says, the question is, are you going to be one of them? And that is a question we all have to ask ourselves. Are we going to be one more of them? I think what we need in government today, Robert, as in all times, let's face it, is open and honest elected representatives who understand what is right and what is wrong and why that is so, and then who will act on it or at least refuse to act when asked to do wrong. And then at least they wouldn't be doing harm. Well, you know, many do. They simply leave the country. Well, that might be the only way to do it. But if we voted for such people as I just described, the natural consequence would be freedom and capitalism. 
it's really a waste of time in politics, not philosophically, to be advocating free markets or capitalism or even freedom in any open idea, you know, ideological sense during an election. You know, if you want capitalism, you have to have capitalists, the kind who support banning of force in human relationships, especially in economics. Not capitalists who are just only business people, because they're among some of the worst communists. <laughs> right? true, true. So where does that leave us for our grand conclusion? Well, let's pull the plug on every communist and moral relativist who's causing us harm. Force them to earn their money. Stop forcing us, a taxpayer, to give them their unearned money and power. You know, they hate profit precisely because they hate accountability and transparency. Isn't that obvious? We need a sick care system, not a health nobody cares system. It is an issue of life and death, and that's it for this week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Well, I suggest that we get rid of all the staff currently employed at that hospital and use the money saved to open closed wards in other hospitals. Minister! When we can afford it, we open St. Edward's with medical staff, if you would be so kind. Minister, if you do that, you will delay the opening of St. Edward's for patients for years. Why? Well, you talk as if the staff had nothing to do simply because there are no patients there. What do they do? Oh, really, Minister? There are a large number of extremely busy departments. Oh, administrators. More administrators to administrate the other administrators. But this is important work, Minister. The typing pool, stationery, desks, office furniture and equipment, liaison between departments. I can't tell whether you're being serious or not. <laughs> what do you mean? There are no patients. That is what a hospital is for. Patients. Ill people. Healing the sick. Very well, Minister. I shall have a word with the health service unions. But I don't hold out much hope. Go!